The problem comes when we let a tiny group of extremely wealthy people express their point of view to a much greater extent than everyone else. Then we don't have a balanced public debate. We have a, a skewed public debate, and as a result, we have both political campaigns and public policy overwhelmingly reflect the, the views and the preferences of, of that tiny elite of people. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Represent Us, The Bradcast with guest host Angie Coiro, The Young Turks, The Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Odds are, almost every Money in Politics story you've ever seen has started with two simple words. Citizens United. Citizens United. Citizens United. Citizens United. Yes, Citizens United. The Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United v. Federal Election Commission is one of the most notorious rulings of our time. And when people talk about Citizens United, they make it sound like the Death Star. Like this massive force that flipped some invisible switch on our government from not corrupt to super corrupt. And if we could just do away with this one ruling, money would stop pouring into our political system and democracy would be saved. Now, make no mistake, Citizens United was a bad ruling. Its underlying assumptions have been proved wrong time and time again, and it will hopefully be overturned by a future Supreme Court and relegated to the dustbin of history, where it belongs. But here's the thing. Citizens United could be thrown out tomorrow, and it would still be perfectly legal for special interests and lobbyists to buy and sell politicians. But hey, don't take my word for it. Let's look at an example. See if you can spot where Citizens United comes in. So, one of the most egregious examples of our corrupt political system at work comes in the form of America's astronomically high drug prices. And this is not an accident. It is a deliberate feature of legislation passed by our own Congress. It prohibited Medicare and the federal government from using its vast purchasing power to negotiate lower prices directly from the drug companies. Well, the key goal was to make sure there'd be no interference in the drug companies' ability to charge high prices and to continue to increase those prices. Let that sink in, y'all. Federal law specifically prohibits Medicare from trying to negotiate cheaper prices with drug companies. So... How do you think the pharmaceutical industry managed to pull that one off? Congressmen are outnumbered two to one by lobbyists for an industry that spends roughly $100 million a year in campaign contributions and lobbying expenses to protect its profits. The pharmaceutical lobbyists wrote the bill. The bill was over a 1,000 pages, and it got to the members of the House that morning, and we voted for it at about 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, stop me if you've heard this one before. In order to avoid public scrutiny, the industry-friendly legislation was hustled through Congress in the middle of the night, and it ultimately passed, largely thanks to this guy, then-Congressman Billy Towsan. And I say then-Congressman because after he ushered the prescription drug bill through Congress, Towsan was named President and CEO of Pharma, the leading pharmaceutical industry trade group. Because of course he was. So, just like that, special interests were able to buy public policy that hamstrings the competitive market and hurts regular Americans. Thanks a lot, Supreme Court. Citizens United strikes again. Except not at all. This story happened in 2003, a full seven years before Citizens United. And the exact same kind of thing is still happening every single day, on nearly every issue. Despite what you've probably heard, Citizens United is not the sole source of political corruption in America. It is just one piece of an enormously complex problem. So, what did Citizens United 
actually do. Well, as long as the decision stands, so-called independent groups funded by corporations, unions, and a small handful of incredibly, incredibly super-duper rich people can spend unlimited sums of money trying to influence our political system. In practical terms, that means groups like Patriot Majority on the left and Americans for Prosperity on the right can keep flooding the airwaves with manipulative political ads, like these. Outsourcing jobs, taking down the flag. No wonder Ben Romney wants to hide from the truth. Call Representative Kathy Conway. Tell her to stand with Missouri workers, not Barack Obama's liberal agenda. Sharon Engel. No plan. No jobs. Angus King. Helping himself. Hurting Maine. Classy. But it is also worth noting that this post-Citizens United mega-donor money only goes so far. In 2012, casino magnate and angry pile of mashed potatoes Sheldon Adelson spent more than $100 million on races across the country, but nearly all of his preferred candidates lost anyway. In 2016, huge outside groups couldn't say former GOP presidential hopefuls like Rick Perry or Scott Walker, and they haven't done a whole lot for Jeb Bush either. He's still struggling in the polls, despite having more super PAC money than anyone else. And that's not to say that Citizens United didn't matter, and that's certainly not my intention with this video. Even when big money loses, it has a huge impact by shaping who can mount a legitimate campaign and which policies they champion if elected. But it's crucial to understand that when it comes to rigging the system for financial gain, the most successful special interests write our laws, bribe our legislators with cushy lobbying jobs, and directly fund their re-election campaigns. These strategies all existed long before Citizens United. And more importantly, they can be outlawed right now, without waiting for a constitutional amendment. I wanted to make this video because I still see a ton of very influential public leaders continue to portray the repeal of Citizens United as the one and only answer to political corruption. And this message really bothers me. Not because I don't like the idea of overturning Citizens United, but because there is so much more we can and should be fighting for. Like, even if Citizens United stayed in place, there's still a huge list of reforms that would be 100% constitutional. You could pass all of the things I'm about to read tomorrow. For starters, we could make it illegal for legislators to take lavish vacations paid for by special interests, ban lobbyists from coordinating fundraisers and making donations to the politicians they lobby, make it illegal for legislators and their staff to take lucrative lobbying jobs as soon as they leave government, mandate full transparency of every dollar spent to influence our political system, change the way elections are funded by creating small donor systems so candidates can run for office without selling out to special interests. And that's all just for starters. Not one of these reforms is prevented by Citizens United, but together they could help keep the Billy Towsans of the world from selling our government to the highest bidder. If we really want to fix our corrupt political system, we have to think beyond Citizens United and tackle the most immediate, pernicious, and insidious cause of corruption today. A government that is dependent on rich donors, special interests, and lobbyists instead of the American people. And it's going to take more than a constitutional amendment to break that dependency. At some point, all the gods and goddesses willing, this election will be over. Oh, please. Oh, please let this end. 
Well, one thing will not change. Money in politics will keep being the most important battle political reformers face. Everything else, fiscal inequality, racial injustice, women's equality, would look entirely different if our candidates and congressional voices didn't have to spend so much time getting into and staying in Congress with the help of finances from interested parties. Derek Cressman visited me recently for my syndicated show, In Deep with Angie Cuero. He is the author of When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. We talked about the real scope of the problem and his own history on the campaign trail. Derek ran for California Secretary of State in 2014. And before that, he was Common Cause's Vice President of State Operations in California. My guest, Derek Cressman, gets right down to business in the introduction to his new book, describing the landmark Citizens United Supreme Court ruling. He writes, Five men in black robes say it is unconstitutional to prevent the super rich from drowning out the voices of everyone else. Those five men are wrong, and the rest of us must make it right. The problem is more than Citizens United. The most speech going to the most moneyed has a longer history than that. Derek Cressman, thank you for coming to Kepler's. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about the distinction that you make that the whole concept of paid speech and whether it is appropriate within a democracy has to do with who's paying for it. That's right. You know, you can use money to disseminate speech. But I draw a line in the book between free speech, both it's free, meaning you, you can speak your conscience and not get thrown in jail for that, but also speech that is free to the speaker. So if you call into a radio show or write a letter to the editor, it doesn't cost you anything to do that. If you're a reporter for that newspaper, not only does it not cost you, but they pay you to mm -hmm. submit the story because those costs are borne by the listener who subscribes to the Washington Post or the New York Times or buys a book or, or a ticket to a movie. They're opting to pay for the speech. That's correct. On the other side of the line, we have paid speech, such as advertising, that the costs are borne by the speaker. And I think both of these have a role in our democracy, but we need to be very careful that paid speech doesn't overwhelm free speech, and particularly paid speech coming from a tiny group of people doesn't overwhelm even the paid speech uh, of the rest of us. And, and that's the situation that we've gotten ourselves into with the Citizens United ruling and a host of other rulings, as, as you alluded to. This is a topic that tends to be painted in broad strokes. Rich people shouldn't have the biggest say. It's not terribly nuanced. But one of the things you talk about with putting speech in the hands of the people who can afford to disseminate it is that people in different classes tend to view things differently. And what happens when money equals speech, the principles the country ends up being run on are not necessarily the views of the majority. You know, it's no surprise or even necessarily no problem that different segments of our society would have different viewpoints based on their backgrounds and experiences. The problem comes when we let a tiny group of extremely wealthy people express their point of view to a much greater extent than everyone else. Then we don't have a balanced public debate. We have a, a skewed public debate. And as a result, we have 
both political campaigns and public policy overwhelmingly reflect the, the views and the preferences of, of that tiny elite of people. And you put a quote from former Senator Paul Simon talking about if he gets home at the end of the night, take it from there, because I thought this was really illustrative. Yeah, you know, he, he tells a story saying, you know, look, if, if I get back to Chicago and, and it's 11 o'clock at night and, and I have 20 messages and I have time to return one phone call and I see one of those messages from someone who's given me $1,000, who do you think I'm going to call? And we've tended to talk about this problem of money in politics as one of corruption or bribery. And my point is it may be more helpful to think about whose voice gets heard by the member of Congress, who can arrange a meeting for their lobbyist with a member of Congress, and who can buy a TV ad to express their point of view and who can't and, and whose voices aren't being heard. You actually went out and got arrested. And that was a nice little lesson in what the appropriate boundaries on free speech are. So let's talk about your arrest. What were you up to? Sure. Well, I was joining an organization called 99 Rice, and they're actually planning a similar march and nonviolent protest coming up this spring. It's called Democracy Spring, and I'll be taking part in that as well. It's going to start in Philadelphia and wind up at the U.S. Capitol. But the incident I write about in the book was a march that started in Los Angeles, California, and um, uh, several dozen people walked the entire distance from Los Angeles to Sacramento. I was in the middle of a campaign for Secretary of State, so I, I joined the, the front end of that march and the tail end. And at the end, we had several hundred people wind up at the steps of the Capitol in Sacramento. And by 1030 at night, there were 13 of us who were still there expressing our political speech. And we were informed by the Capitol Police that our permit to protest had expired, you know, as if there's an expiration date in the First Amendment. And it's, it's one of many examples I talk about in the book of how we actually limit the speech and the volume and the duration speech of regular people all the time. And yet then we have this double standard for, for billionaires. We, we won't limit their money and how much speech they can purchase, but we have lots of limits on how long any of the rest of us can speak. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Citizens United and its reputation as the big smack in the face to the idea that everyone should have equal voice. But this is the latest in a series of rulings and a series of battles that kind of sealed the deal on this. You know, Citizens United was maybe the most offensive Supreme Court ruling on money and politics. I'm not sure from a policy point of view, it's the worst, but I think it gained so much notoriety in part because of, of the process that the court used to arrive at its ruling, where it, it could have issued a very narrow ruling pertaining to this movie made by the organization Citizens United. And instead, John Roberts told the plaintiffs, hey, you didn't ask for enough. Come back to me and re-argue this case and tell me to blow up the entire campaign finance rules. And that's just wildly inappropriate thing for a, a court to do, especially someone who professed to be, you know, into judicial modesty in his confirmation hearing. The real problem on this, the, the, there were subsequent rulings to that, such as the, the Speech Now case, which actually Judge Garland, who was just nominated by President Obama, was part of unanimously extending the logic of the Citizens United ruling. But the, the real problems go back 40 years. Well, let's, um, let's back up and just give us the nut of the case that Garland was involved with. That was a case called Speech Now versus Federal Election Commission. And it, it 
extended the logic of the Citizens United case, where, where in Citizens United, the Roberts court said, well, if a corporation or a labor union spends money independently of a political candidate, that isn't possibly a bribe to them. It isn't possibly corrupting, and therefore they can spend however many gazillion dollars they want to. And then um, a- another case was brought saying, well, what about an individual billionaire? I mean, if a corporation can do it and a labor union can do it, why can't a, a billionaire spend as much as they want in these so-called super PACs? And the appellate court unanimously said, oh, yeah, well, if Citizens United is correct, then it must be also the case that, that billionaires can spend independently. And, and that is what created the super PAC situation, not the Citizens United case. And we now have a judge that it was part of that unanimous decision nominated to the Supreme Court. We're talking right now to Derek Cressman here at Kepler's. His book is When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. So what we have is this series of cases that you have X amount of money and you want to use it to express yourself. As long as you are not giving it directly to the candidate, you can operate through super PACs to do it. States and other jurisdictions have made efforts in the past to deal with that, and they keep getting smacked down. Talk about Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was just a couple of days ago, passed a law by ballot measure in the early 70s that said there's going to be a maximum amount that each candidate could spend so that there would be a level playing field and and voters could hear from both sides or maybe multiple sides and then decide who they want to vote for. California passed a similar law in 1974, Proposition 9, that created the Political Reform Act and set mandatory limits on our campaign spending. And Congress passed a law like that in the wake of the Watergate scandals and set mandatory limits on how much congressional candidates could spend. Those laws were eviscerated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976 in uh, this this ruling that was actually more damaging than Citizens United. It was called Buckley versus Vallejo, and fewer people have heard of it. Albuquerque, either they just didn't get the memo or they just didn't care. They decided they were going to keep enforcing their local campaign finance laws in defiance of the United States Supreme Court ruling in Buckley for a period of uh, more than 30 years. And we had excellent elections. Voter turnout was higher. Uh, you know, so it, it's uh, a data point of what elections could look like if we had a sane set of rules on money and politics. I'm gonna make democracy start paying off for me. I don't care what the founding fathers As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the 
cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Guys, the, the punishing Hillary, la, 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 la. No, no, you're missing it. It's not going to work. It's not like if you punish Hillary, the next a Democrat in this system will learn their lesson and be more progressive. No, no, no. You have to destroy the corrupt system. Yes. Well, Unless, uh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Unless you rewrite the code and get an amendment to get democracy back, it's a fairy tale that you're going to get a more progressive Democrat. No, the Democratic Party is, in a sense, useless. It's part of, so all the things that you complain about, Jimmy, are never going to get better in this system. Never. You can punish her all you like. You can vote for Trump. You could do this. The next guy, the next person that comes along in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. will have come along in that same system fed by giant amount of donor money. They will be just as bad. They will never learn that lesson. The lesson they learned is who signs my checks. That's the only lesson they learned. So all of this is immaterial. The only thing that matters is to make sure that you change that system. That's the only thing that matters. So sending a lesson to Hillary Clinton, I think, is totally and utterly irrelevant. There is no, the Democratic Party and the establishment of the Democrats aren't ever going to learn a lesson. That's not how this machine is built. So you've got to take the machine down. Congressman David W. Jolly is a Republican representing Florida's 13th Congressional District, which is a peninsula on the west coast of Florida that includes St. Petersburg. Congressman Jolly was first elected to the House in 2014 and is now in his second term. He serves on the House Appropriations Committee and sits on three appropriations subcommittees, the Subcommittee on Military Construction, Veterans Affairs, the Subcommittee on Transportation, Housing and Urban Development, and the Subcommittee on Commerce, Justice, and Science. This past year, he introduced legislation called the STOP Act, which would ban members of Congress from personally asking for campaign donations. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Congressman David Jolly. Well, hey, thank you. Good to be with you all today. And thank you, Congressman Jolly, for coming on. You are, by your own choice, a very controversial member of the House. You apparently mean what you say when you introduce the STOP Act. And can you briefly describe the STOP Act before we have you describe what you were taught in terms of how much money you had to raise? Sure, you got it. Hey, good to be with you. Listen, we all know about the amount of money in politics uh, and we all have our opinions about that. As a new member of Congress, though, I was not fully aware of the amount of time it takes to raise that money. And so I'm coming at big money in politics from a slightly different angle, and an angle that I think can push us towards some real reform. And that is the amount of time 
that a sitting member of Congress is expected to spend raising money and not doing their job. Hold on to your seats, listeners. When I first heard how much time they spend, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. Go ahead, Congressman Jolly. We pay these people in Congress for a full-time job. Take it from there. That's right. So members of Congress, I believe, make about $174,000 a year. And yet, on a bipartisan basis, one of the few areas where the parties agree, the first priority a new member is told is fundraising, not legislating. And so if you look at an orientation package on the Democratic side of the aisle, they actually offered their members a model schedule for a day in D.C. And that model schedule says spend four hours on the phone at party headquarters asking for money. Spend another hour or two a day networking. On the Republican side, they were kind enough to give new members of Congress a call sheet that's actually a flow chart that says, dial the number. If you get the assistant, say this. If you get the principal, say this. If they say no, do this. If they say yes, do this. And the end result you're supposed to try to secure is $38,000. Consider in a congressional race today, if it costs 2 or $3 million to run a race, how long does it take your member of Congress to raise 2 or $3 million in any other profession? If you spent half your time doing something other than the job you were hired to do, you'd be fired. It's called cheating. And I believe that members of Congress today are cheating taxpayers, and it is a first-rate scandal of this generation. Now, when you came to the House of Representatives, you were a staff member to Congressman Bill Young, who passed away, and you won, a, right. won a special election. So you know how the game was played. But then you got an invitation from the Republican Party headquarters nearby to come, and they'll tell you how to raise money. And you have to narrate this really personally, Congressman Jolly. Sure. You sure. sat behind closed doors at one of the party headquarters back rooms <laughs> in front of a white board where the equation was drawn out. <laughs> what was the equation? That's exactly right, Ralph. So let me share. I did work as a staff member for my predecessor, Bill Young. Now, he had been there 43 years. He came into Congress in a different generation before the high campaign finance. And so while I worked for him, I can honestly say this. I never saw him make a single phone call. I was aware about the amount of money, but I actually was not aware about that the obligation of new members of Congress to make phone calls and to raise money. I hadn't seen that before. So I get there as a new member of Congress, elected in a special election that at the time was the most expensive race in congressional history. Almost $14 million in 10 weeks was spent in one county in Florida during our special election. Fourteen million. Now, I am facing a re-election about five or six months later. And a member of party leadership at the time asked to meet with me because he wants to offer some insights and counsel and guidance on how to get reelected. So we go over to party headquarters and behind closed doors, we sit down and, you know, I'm kind of excited. I want to hear from one of our party leaders what he recommends to get reelected. It turns out it was nothing more than an elementary school equation. He said, you have this many days until your reelection. You have to raise this amount of money do the math, and that comes out to $18,000 a day. And he said, your first job, new member of Congress, is to raise $18,000 a day. He turned to my deputy chief of staff at the time and said, now, deputy chief of staff, your problem is you have this new member of Congress who's excited about working for his community. He wants to get all these things done in Congress, but you have to keep him focused on fundraising. That's the most important thing he's going to do between now and November. Good heavens. This is a first-person account, listeners. And you actually go into some detail. You say simply by calling people, 
cold calling a list that fundraisers put in front of you, you're presented with their biography. So please call John. He's married to Sally. His daughter, Emma, just graduated from high school. They gave $18,000 last year to different candidates. They can give you $1,000 too if you ask them. And they put you on the phone and it's actual script. There are actually scripts for calls. Those are your words. Now, what is the trade-off? What do you think the quid pro quo? You call John Doe or Jane Doe up and you ask for money. They're expecting something, right? And what do you try to say to them without, you know, selling your soul? So, you know, I would say this. I don't believe that most people are actually expecting something in return legislatively. I do think they want a personal relationship. They want to know that their member of Congress is accessible. In the case of those who are after undue influence, frankly, that rises to criminal activity and we need to hold members of Congress accountable. But what you're speaking to, Ralph, is this. You know, every fundraiser and every political consultant has told me I'm crazy for trying to do this. And they say the reason why is the most effective fundraiser is the member of Congress. Well, every time I hear that, that rings of an indictment of the system. Why is it that a member of Congress should be more effective at asking for $1,000 than a staff member who gets paid to be a professional fundraiser? That speaks to one of the problems with the current system. If people feel more obligated or more inclined to contribute because of one of their elected legislators is standing in front of them with a handout, that's wrong. And so, you know, I go back to the STOP Act. The STOP Act would prohibit any member of Congress from directly soliciting a contribution. I also took the pledge. As of this past January, I no longer directly solicit contributions, either in person, by phone, by email, on our website. I've tried to be faithful to this pledge. We've scrubbed our website. If people do want to donate to our campaign, it goes through our campaign manager or our finance director. As the city member of Congress, I'm removed from the process altogether. Israel, a Democrat from Long Island, announced his retirement at the beginning of this year, saying, I don't think I can spend another day in another call room making another call begging for money. And since he is leaving anyway, I figured he might be willing to shine a light on some of the aspects of fundraising that we don't usually see. So I sat down with Steve Israel last week. Take a look. Congressman, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me. Thank you. So let's start with political fundraising. In your prime, how many of those fundraisers were you physically having to go to a year? So all told, over 16 years, uh, I've done, just for my own uh, re-election, 1,600 fundraising events. Holy Actual shit. events. That's one every three days, more or less. Uh, over 16 years? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Talk to me about the Congressional Call Center. How important is that place? Well, you've got to have a place to, to make those calls. What does it look like? P- paint me a word picture. Is there, you know, motivational 
posters on the wall saying, hang in there and try not to think too much about what you're doing. You have a bunch of cubicles set up and those cheap fabric dividers and you sit at a little desk and you have a phone and you have an assistant next to you and you have a call book and the call book has sheets uh, of every donor. Uh, past donors and their records and uh, your assistant gets uh, a, a supporter on the phone and gives the phone to you uh, and you engage in polite conversation and then you get to the point and then you hang up and then you flip the page to the next donor and then you make another call and you continue doing that until you have the resources in order to get reelected. <laughs> oh my god that's depressing. Not what our founders had in mind. How do you train people to do it well? Is there a script like with small talk and how they could be part of the solution? No, well, every member has their own uh, approach. My approach was to get right to the point and then have a civilized conversation. Okay. I mean, I guess it makes sense. It's just like mm -hmm. someone giving you a massage and starting with the hand job and then <laughs> working the shoulders. It it's is, fine. It's just it unexpected. Is, well, it, everybody has their own style and their, their own preferences. How much time is there between hanging up that phone and the next call? You got to keep moving. You it's have to serious. keep moving. It, it, look, if you are in a very competitive district and you know you've got to raise $1.5 million, that means that you have to raise a certain amount of money every quarter. You break it down to a certain amount of money every month. You break it down to a certain amount of money every week. And you break it down to a certain amount of money in every hour of call time. This whole call center sounds like a shitty telemarketing operation. It is, uh, a, in my view, a form of torture, uh, and it is uh, the real victims of this torture uh, have become the American people because they believe that they don't have a voice uh, in this system. We all understand that at a time like this, it is more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you are in a position to stand up when you know others can't. And if your budget's a little bit bloated, what might you be able to cut out to make room to support all of the independent media that you depend on? Maybe you're spending too much on your cable bill, your coffee habit, your cell phone, whatever. It's not exactly building a victory garden, but maybe there's something you can cut back on so you can redirect those funds to your favorite news sources who depend on supporters like you. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default, but I know a lot of people hate them, so I would be happy to set you up with a recurring payment on your credit or debit card using Square. Just shoot me an email, j at bestofleft.com, and I'll send you an invoice to get you started. If you sign up to donate six bucks a month or more, you get access to the members-only podcast, which includes commercial-free versions of the show, as well as some bonus content that I make and tell some stories, mull over some big ideas. So if you get value out of this show and think it's worth supporting it, then I hope you will make the move to become a member today. So again, you can support this independent media show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. There are two categories of donors, at least. People like you just described, they, they want access, they like generally what you're doing, they are a member of the party. But then there are economic interests. And are you expected also to call, for example, auto dealers, insurance agents, 
oil company lobbyists. And when you do call them to raise your, quote, $18,000 a year, you don't do that anymore, but that's what you were urged to do. Do they ever ask you for something in a general way? They can't be too explicit because, as you you noted properly, that could be bribery or extortion, depending on who it's coming from. Describe that kind of donor. You know, I could say I have not seen the quid pro quo that I think we all are suspicious of. We know it happens, and we see cases where there are criminal charges and members of Congress indicted. We've seen some very recently, actually. But I do believe that you see access being much more easily obtained as a result of contributions that happen within the D.C. community. And largely those are going to be advocacy organizations on the left or the right that have a political agenda. And so they choose to support members on specific committees. You know, I actually introduced the Stop Act not to take on the parties. I introduced the Stop Act to give breathing room to members of Congress to get back to work and do their job. But what you're speaking to, Ralph, is an additional element, right? So for my reelection campaign in Florida, it would probably cost $2 million for my own reelection. Well, in addition to that fundraising demand, the parties expect you to raise money for the party. And that's where you see particularly this list of special interest groups that you're expected to solicit. Right? If you're a member of the Transportation Committee, the party is happy to give you a list of organizations with transportation interest and ask that you solicit contributions from them because there is a natural affinity between their legislative interests and your committee assignments. You know, there's a group out there called Issue One that I've begun to work with on some bipartisan campaign finance issues. One of the proposals out there would say if a registered lobbyist declares that they are lobbying on a specific issue, they should be prohibited from contributing to members on that committee of jurisdiction. That would be one easy reform. I like the distinction you're making. Your Stop Act, HR 4443, HR 4443 listeners, is congressional reform. It's not comprehensive campaign finance reform. It's very important to focus on the behavior and the time use of your legislators. There are only 535 members of the Congress that have all that power you've given them, people of America. And so it's important they spend time watching over the executive branch. That's called oversight. They spend time reflecting some of your concerns in congressional hearings. They spend time legislating either passing laws or repealing laws. They spend time upholding their constitutional oath to say to the executive branch, you can't start wars without congressional declaration, etc. So there's a lot of work to do that they're simply not doing. And here you come along and you really create the wave of waves, which is you, you, you tell your colleagues, you know, your assistants can ask for money. You can go to fundraisers, but you cannot ask for money directly, but you're no longer going to be able to ask for money if the Stop Act is enacted. So you get all of what, nine or 10 sponsors, a few Democrats and Republicans, (laughs) and then you get a barrage of dark looks, nasty comments, (laughs) and the Republicans are actually ostracizing you, even though they want every Republican to win so they can control the House. Your district seems to be outside of their concern because you offended them by telling them to get back to work for the full-time salary they're getting and the public trust they're supposed to be reflecting back home. So tell us, who are the members that signed on? They have to be pretty bold. Sure. And what kind of static have you been getting? 
Sure. So, you know, Harry Truman said, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. Uh, well, my wife and I just got two because we don't have many friends left in D.C. We do have nine or ten co-sponsors. I joke that's nine or ten more than I thought we'd have. When I introduced it, I introduced it with Rick Nolan, a Democrat from Minnesota. So we've introduced it from a, on a bipartisan basis. And then we've picked up another seven or eight co-sponsors. But you hit on something very important. I do call this congressional reform, not campaign finance. Listen, I'm a Republican who would love to work on broad-based campaign finance reform. How do we protect constitutional liberties with reasonable regulations and ultimately get a more accountable and responsive government? I would love to be a Republican leading the charge on campaign finance. This, however, really is a congressional reform. You know, in states like Florida, many other states, your state legislators are prohibited from directly soliciting contributions when they're in session. Judges on the ballot in 30 states are prohibited from directly soliciting contributions. The U.S. Supreme Court has upheld that prohibition on judges soliciting contributions. And the idea is twofold. One, get back to work. And two, let's remove any appearance of impropriety. So I call this congressional reform because I say we've got a part-time Congress in a full-time world. Why haven't we balanced the budget? Why haven't we done an authorization to use military force or not? Why don't we have broad-based tax reform? Why don't we have comprehensive immigration reform? It's because we have a Congress more focused on raising money to get through the next November cycle than they are on doing the job that people elected them to do. It's even, and Ralph, I've got no interest in being a member of a broken Congress. It's even worse than that. They can't even produce budgets on time for the various departments <laughs> and agencies of the executive branch. Tell the listeners... You better be sitting down, listeners. How many days this year the Congress will be working, actually working in Congress on Capitol Hill? I don't know. I would guess maybe 125, 130, but then those days are part-time days. Listen, I've introduced a, a no budget, no pay. If we don't pass a budget to fund agencies, we shouldn't get paid. I introduced a resolution requiring a 40-hour work week in Washington, just like everybody else. If we're in session, let's get there at 8 a.m. Monday and leave at 6 p.m. Friday. Because right now, the days we actually are there, which is basically three days a week for maybe 35 weeks out of the year, they are completely orchestrated, and members of Congress simply don't have the time to work on the issues that are most pressing for the American people. Listen, listeners, to what Congressman Rick Nolan, a Democrat who co-sponsored this bill, H.R. 443, with Congressman Jolly, listen to what he said, quote, both parties have told newly elected members of the Congress that they should spend 30 hours a week in the Republican-Democratic call centers across the street from the Congress dialing for dollars. The reporter says, 30 hours a week? Congressman Nolan says, 30 hours is what they tell you you should spend, and it's discouraging good people from running for public office. I could give you names of people who've said, quote, you know, I'd like to go to Washington to help fix problems, but I don't want to go to Washington and become a mid-level telemarketer dialing for dollars for crying out loud, end quote. Now, here's what you can do, listeners. You can write your member of Congress. You can write the two senators and representatives a simple letter, and you say, I agree with Congressman David Jolly and Congressman Rick Nolan that the legislation H.R. 4443 should be enacted to prohibit individual members of Congress from directly soliciting for campaign contributions. Do you? What is your position? I don't want to call. I want a written letter with your franking privileges telling me whether you are going to co-sign this legislation or whether you are not 
and explain why you are not. Now, you see how easy it is to start putting some pressure on members of Congress? Is there anybody who can stop you from doing that? Nobody. So what's your excuse? Your excuse is maybe you don't agree with the legislation, but I rather doubt that. You send your members of Congress to do work, the most serious work in America, for the most powerful branch of government, to attend to the problems of the country, to take the solutions off the shelf. And if you start putting the pressure on your two senators and representatives, whether you're in California or Connecticut or Alaska or Florida, they will start taking notice. And so when Congressman Jolly walks onto the floor of the House, people do not veer away from him in droves, whispering dark, nasty thoughts. What do you think? So, Ralph, we also have put together a website, and it's very simple. It's thestopact.com. Listeners can sign a petition. We have nearly 20,000 signers to our petition already. And listen, I say this with a little bit of heartbreak, but it's going to take a national movement and it's going to take a scandal for us to get this over the finish line. If I just went to my colleagues with this, they would kill it. But if the American people, your listeners, demand change and shine a light on what I think is a first-rate political scandal of our generation, we can get this done. And, you know, if you ask members of Congress now, Congressman Jolly, what chance does this have of being passed? Just the way Congressman Israel, Steve Israel, was asked, and one of the reasons why he quit was that he was sick of spending hour after hour dialing for money on his behalf, on behalf sure. of his colleagues. He said that this bill is dead on arrival. Yeah, until the people back home find out about it, <laughs> and it won't well, be dead right. on arrival. So give the website again no, and, and, for H.R. 4443. The website is dot com. And listen, I understand Steve's opinion on this, but shame on Steve Israel for this. Why is it only retiring members of Congress are finally willing to confess about the amount of time they spent cheating taxpayers or raising money? Right? He waited till he retired before he penned an op-ed. Members of Congress on their way out the door, they lament all the time they spent raising money. Trent Lott, Tom Daschle, they wrote a book about how much time they spent raising money. Yeah. Well, the cynic in me would say they're still trying to raise money off you by selling you a book, confessing to things they didn't do when they were in Congress. What's different about the STOP Act is we've got 10 members of Congress who are there today, not retiring, who are trying to change the system. That's what's special about this movement. Things could be stranger, but I don't know how. I'm going through changes now. Spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. I'm going through changes now that have just begun under a purple sun. There's many reasons we are what we've become. I'm going through changes, ripping out pages. I'm going through changes now. I've got some great news for you guys in regards to uh, the revolution that we've all been talking about, a political revolution. And uh, part of that revolution, uh, in my mind, is Wolfpack. And if you don't know about Wolfpack, let me just quickly tell you what its job is. Its job is to defeat all other super PACs and get money out of politics. Luckily, 90% of Americans agree with us. Unluckily, uh, Congress doesn't, because at the national level, they all got elected through this corrupt system. And we want to end this corruption and we want to end this system and we want to bring 
free and fair elections back. Now the great news is at the state level democracy exists and you have representatives that actually represent you. And boy have I got a great case of that in Rhode Island. You know, we've already won in four states and and so what does it mean to win in those four states? Well, we don't want to just ask Washington pretty please, can you give us an amendment that they're not in favor of? Well, luckily the founding fathers were geniuses and they put a second option in to the constitution saying you could actually get that amendment by having two-thirds of the states call for a convention where it would be proposed and you don't need Washington at all. But you do need those state leaders. They would be our new founding fathers to bring democracy back to us. Well, luckily we have them. So four states have already done it and now we were in Rhode Island and I told you recently that the house had passed the resolution. It was HR 7670 and it passed 59 to 12, it was overwhelming. And I praised a lot of those legislators, I'm going to praise them again in a second. But look, you need both houses. You don't need the governors, but you do need a house and you need the Senate in each state. And sometimes we've gotten very close in some states, gotten one of the chambers and not the other. In Rhode Island, we then at the end of last week went to the Senate. And the Senate bill number was SR 2589. And the vote was 36 yes, 0 no. Rhode Island is your fifth state. Fifth state to come on board. We did it. We did it in Rhode Island. And I'm going to tell you about the volunteers. They are so wonderful. I'm going to tell you about the legislators because they deserve all the credit in the world for doing the right things here. But all of them together decided we're done waiting for the next new hope or our knight in shining armor to come rescue us. We're going to rescue ourselves. We're going to bring democracy back. So this is how you do it. Now let me give credit to the people who deserve it. Representative Arthur Handy, he was our House primary sponsor, worked so hard on it. And isn't it so refreshing to have representatives who represent you who say, you yeah, no, 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 I'm not just going to introduce it, I'm going to fight for you guys. I want our democracy back too. And these legislators are actually care about their constituents, as you're going to see in a video in a second. I'm going to give you more though. Representative Kale Cable, House co-sponsor and chairman of the Judiciary Committee was critical in getting this passed. And the leaders of those committees are important to get out of the committees if you know the process and then to get to the floor votes. And then the Speaker of the House, he's the one who again founding father this time around and a leader who allows the vote to happen in the first place. Nicholas Mattiello, wonderful, wonderful work there in getting it done. Other great representatives in the House of Rhode Island are Michael Marcello and Representative DeSimone, who's the majority leader. So all these people helped. And in fact, I want to thank their staffers as well, because without them working hard on it, you oftentimes don't get it to the legislators and don't get them as involved and heroic actions as they had in Rhode Island. So in this case, the staffers were Leo Skenyan. Matt Jerzyk, Frank Montanaro, and so that was the House side, and they were wonderful. In the Senate side, it was bipartisan. All the Democrats say yes, all the Republicans say yes. We'd like to get back to debating ideas and policies and priorities, and not, hey, who's got the bigger donors? Are your donors richer than my donors? So these are real Americans, the ones that care. And yes, they exist. Yes, they're in politics. Yes, Oftentimes they are your representatives. So 
when the politicians do bad things, we point it out here. When they do wonderful things, we should also point it out and we should thank them for it. You've got Senator Joshua Miller on the Senate side. He was our primary sponsor. And so if you see their Twitter handles as you do there, go out there and thank them, especially if you live in Rhode Island. Say thank you for doing this for us, okay? Now I want to show you a, a clip from Senator uh, Joshua Miller here because normally when a, a resolution is introduced, all you need is one co-sponsor, so one a second person will raise their hand and they'll be done with it. Not on this case. Watch. This bill, I would uh, remind the gallery that uh, displays of uh, acclamation are discouraged in the Senate. So. Um, <laughs> Many of you may be familiar with many of the people in the gallery. They've been here since January, I think, and um, they're otherwise known as the Wolf Pack, and they've been working very hard on this legislation that encourages the U.S. Congress to um, convene a convention that would consider an overturning of Citizens United and um, make acts towards fair elections, and I move passage. Senator Miller moves passage by Senator Mess, Senator Sosnowski, Senator Pearson, Senator Aaron Lynch, Prada, Senator Pichado, Senator Goodwin, Senator McCaffrey, Senator Felix, Senator Ruggiero, Senator Pagliarini, Senator Lombardo, Senator O'Neill, Senator Rattaka, Senator Sheehan, Senator Coyne, Senator Archibald, Senator Satchel, and Senator Palmer. That is not something you see often. All those senators saying, no, 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 count me in. Count me in. I, I, I want a co-sponsor. So let me thank uh, some more of them. Uh, Senator Walter Felag was the Senate Chairman of the Special Legislation and Veterans Affairs Committee. Uh, very, very helpful in getting this passed uh, uh, and making sure that we got that vote on the last day. And it's unfortunately it often comes down to the last day. And our volunteers were there every day. That's why all those senators acknowledge them, as you'll see in a second, even more so uh, in a minute when it passes. And then uh, Teresa Pyroweed uh, is the Senate President. Uh, also very important. Uh, and then I want to also mention some other great senators here. Senator Dominic uh, Rigorio, Majority Leader, and Senator Mary Allen Goodwin, the Majority Whip. All critical, all uh, on the right side of history, and I think all will be remembered. Remember, Rhode Island was the first state to say, you know what, uh, we are going to do a real revolution. <laughs> and we, uh, we do not pledge allegiance to the crown anymore. So now they're in the first five states to say, we're going to do it again. This time, we're going to do a revolution from the corrupt system and get us back to democracy. So again, I can't thank those legislators enough, and you should thank them uh, because they now represent you. And uh, it's wonderful to have that democracy in action and have people that are sticking up for you. Now, I want to show you one more video of what they did. Because remember what Senator Joshua Miller said. There's no clapping from the audience. We can't have it. Look at what happens instead here. The first senator you're going to see is James Sheehan, and then you'll see all the others are labeled. Watch. Thank you, Mr. President. I'd just like to commend my colleague, Senator Miller, on this a very important issue. Uh, we're moving, unfortunately, ever increasingly in a direction of instead of having elections, they're becoming auctions. And I think we need to address this very serious situation. And I thank all those who came up and, and demonstrated. It does make a difference, and I encourage you to stay involved. Thank you, Mr. President. I also uh, want to second this resolution. I want to commend those hardworking individuals up in the gallery. Those are the same individuals that have been here, here, here with us for many months and have holding those yellow signs for the last three days. And again, I commend you for your hard work, both here in the Senate and on the House. And I too join uh, Senator Miller and all our colleagues, but especially to the advocates that have been here uh, day in and day out. 
The Wolf Pack is a, is a movement that uh, is going throughout the country, and I congratulate them for their efforts and getting involved, especially many of you who, for the first time, uh, showed up, and now you're seeing how you're making a difference. So stay involved, and I hope uh, everything goes well. Thank you. Thank you very much. As chairman of the uh, Special Legislation Committee, I know these individuals very well. They've been here for the last couple of years uh, testifying. Uh, they've always been very professional. They've done an outstanding job of presenting their case. 35, 36 in the affirmative, none in the negative. The item passes. Congratulations upstairs. <laughs> Senate... <laughs> The senators applauded their constituents. I have literally never seen that in my life, in all these decades of covering politics. <laughs> We've got 30,000 volunteers, grassroots volunteers all across the country, and then they activate other volunteers within their states, and they work so hard. You think this happened overnight? You think this was just the one thing they showed up one day or one week? No, those guys, uh, those volunteers on the ground have been working for two years straight. We didn't pass last year. We passed this year. We didn't get discouraged by, uh, it, the, the, we didn't have instant gratification. No, we redoubled our efforts. So we remember, we remember people who opposed us in other states. We remember our allies and our friends and we're respectful. And we told all those guys we'd have their backs and we do have their backs. Because if they've got our back, we got their back. So let me tell you about those volunteers, wonderful volunteers. Justin. Royos, I love that they have so many nicknames in, in Orlando as they had in Illinois and so many other places. He's our co-state director, amazing work. Uh, his uh, nickname is Boy Wonder, and I didn't make these up. I love nicknames, but they, they do it at the state level on them for themselves. Josh Aces, uh, another co-state uh, director in Rhode Island, both of them work so long, so hard. Uh, he's of course Aces, unsurprisingly. I want to give you a quote from Aces. Here's what he said after the bill passed. He said, this experience has changed me as a person forever. What I felt when each senator stood up before the final vote to thank us for our hard work cannot be put into words. Once we got a unanimous vote, I had to step away because I was too emotional. All those conference calls, long nights of planning, going straight from work to the state house, and this last week of pure determination from our team, all built up to this moment. I want every Wolfpack volunteer to experience this feeling. What did I tell you guys? Fulfillment is a hell of a drug. And it feels so good to win and to get that power back. And to work so long and hard. And for you, these, none of these guys are professional politicians, lobbyists, or anything. They're husbands, fathers, students. Uh, they work full time and then they go and volunteer for Wolfpack. And then when you get it done, you say, I did that. I did that. Me and my friends who worked hard here in Rhode Island, we worked for two years and we got it done. And then the senators, my senators applauded me. And we helped to fix democracy. Oh, there's no better feeling in the world. Come join us. Look, join us through volunteering. Join us if you can't do that, you're not in that particular state or for whatever reason, then at least join us in becoming a member to support their work. That's wolf-pack.com slash join. So that, that leads you to membership. Do it either way, but we gotta have you. We gotta have you as citizen warriors. Now let me give you more of those warriors from Rhode Island. Organizers Gregory Greco, 
aka Big Swag, Bob Raphael, aka The Godfather, and then I've got a lot of volunteers for you guys. Uh, uh, Bryant LeMay, Peter Sabian, Martha DeMeo, Jonathan Hutton, Yasmin Ibarra, John Royas, Josh Parker, Casey Bondurant, Mary Redway, Ethan Huckle, Max Andrade, uh, Brian Sarza, Belinda DePina, Vera Duneau, Joe Gomez, Mike Lamptey, Nikki Morris, Cameron Ramsey, Sam Newland, Matt Mazzola. In your state, your name could be on that list. And this list lives forever. So when historians come back and say, hey, how the hell did they do this? Where they're going to look at those names and go, oh, it was Big Swag and The Godfather and Aces and Boy Wonder and all these other people who did it. Uh, by the way, I mean, there's too many nicknames to go through, but I, I love them so much here. Let me give you just a couple more here. By the way, Bryant LeMay is the mechanic. How great a nickname is that? Casey Bondurant is the legend. Mary Redway is the sweeper. I love these guys. Wherever you are, up and at them, up and at them. Uh, we've got a role for you at the national level, at the local level. If you can't do any of that, like I said, just join us, become a member, support their great, great work. At the national level, you got the Wolf Attack team. These guys are hardcore. We bring them to state to state because they know how to get this done. All volunteers. Sharon Berliner, Stefan Brooks, Paul Kelleher, Glenn Babisevich, Shane Cadlolo, and Jerry Ryberg. Of course, as always, apologies to all the names that I have <laughs> mangled at different times. But you guys, man, you work so hard. We've got state number five. We're nowhere near done yet. We're on a roll. This is how revolutions happen. So wolf-pack.com slash join. Come feel the power. Be the next founding father, whether you're a legislator or you're a volunteer. Let's all do it together. This is the path. We can actually get an amendment to fix the system. And so that our representatives come back to representing us in free and fair elections. That dream is possible. This is how you get it done. God bless Rhode Island. Thanks for listening, everyone, and all of the usual pleasantries. Today's episode was originally produced back in September of this year, but of course, it's a topic that is always fresh in our minds, so I wanted to bring it back for the holiday break. Uh, but now I am here with you live, present day, or as close to the present day as podcasting ever allows, to let you know that the Young Turks organization, Wolfpack, that you just heard Jank talking about, has a year in fundraiser going on. Of course, that does not make them unique. A lot of people have year-end fundraisers, but if you are looking for a place to send your money to help organizations and help the campaign to get money out of politics, I highly recommend them. Of course, I have contributed to them in the past, but realized actually that I wasn't an ongoing monthly contributing member, so I fixed that just today. And so I have donated, and they have their campaign going right now, trying to get 2,000 total new members here at the end of the year. So in the next few days, they have gotten almost to their goal. They only need 300 more. And if you would like to contribute to their campaign, add your name to that list, help them get to their goal of 2,000 new donors, 
What that means in actual concrete terms is that they will be able to hire an additional full-time campaigner. So this is not just help pad their budget. This is the difference between hiring a new person and not. So for details on that, just go to wolf-pac.com and click on the link to become a member. All the details are there. So that's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed or are enjoying whatever amount of holiday or vacation time you were able to squeeze into your schedule. I certainly am. So I'll be back with just one more rerun before the end of the year and then back with new episodes in January. Thanks again for listening. Stay awesome. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past our sad stories and wonder what we're doing. Can't see past our sad stories and forget who it is we're fooling.